This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Kiss me goodbye and write me while Hey everybody, we're back with another commission podcast. This time, special thanks go to Judd Blevins, who pulled out uh, another Kubrick uh, masterpiece. I want to say that because this seems like uh, the one yeah. that that's a proper inflection for this surprise. You know, I've I've never actually done a lot of critical reading into uh, Full Metal Jacket, 1987's Full Metal Jacket, starring Matthew Modine, mm-hmm. Vincent D'Onofrio, and of course uh, Arlie Ermey as yeah. the drill instructor. Uh, I Whoa. haven't really done a lot what about of credit. Adam Baldwin. He doesn't get any credit as animal oh, mother. Yeah, Adam, Adam Baldwin's mother. I, I didn't want to get too far because I know there's a lot of other people that I just you know didn't didn't recognize. Like honestly, if I hadn't read reviews, I don't know that I recognize Matthew Modine. Right, Modine. Yeah, Modine. Uh, I know I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. I just can't pinpoint. And you it. denied the validity right. of the Vincent D'Onofrio. I'm like, that's fucking. Even he looks Leandro. so much different, though. Like, yeah, he's you know forty years younger. Any game that's the he, funny he thing. He aged forty years and twenty. Is all of the, all of the contemporary reviews of the movie mention how much weight he gained for the role? Right, and then he lost. He like gained like, I, and I think he still holds the record for gaining and losing weight. Although I don't, that's hard to believe with Christian Bale. Yeah, going but from Christian the Bale's to never Batman. been hugely fat, right? Yeah, but, like oh, but pure weight. Vincent D'Onofrio has not been re- skeletal. Like just walked out of a prison. I, he camp. must have been before this movie because, like, how much? Like seventy pounds he put on for That's this movie. What I said. Well, no, well, and he no, doesn't the, look like he's that much heavier. I don't think he put on that. But the difference between this movie and then the next movie, which I have never heard of, but and they had a picture where he's pretty cut. There was seventy pounds. It's not like he gained seventy pounds and lost seventy pounds. Oh, the, see, I heard that he the gained velocity 70. between the fattest that he was. In. And the right. other thing is, I think his weight fluctuates in this movie. Yeah, like he's noticeably tubbier at the beginning. Than I he think is. his weight fluctuates throughout his life. Frankly, <laughs> well, that's the other. Th- that's that's where exactly where I was going to because okay. I wonder if this early yo-yoing fucked up his metabolism because now oh, oh, oh. I don't think I've ever seen him. It's been like 20 years since I've seen him in trim, right. the Onfrio mode, and then in Kingpin, he... I don't know if he intentionally gained weight for that role, or he just started Balloon. off where he left Law and & Order and, and, and <laughs> kept on with the jelly so donuts. Christian but. Bale needs to constantly do boxing and action movies, <laughs> otherwise he's going to turn into yeah, I mean, just a bag of jello. I mean, it's probably <laughs> safe to say that that's not healthy. Yeah, no, it's to it's gain not. and lose seventy pounds and right. to go to that. Th- and, and you, you have, did you read his diet for to get the machinist weight? No, it no. was like a can of tuna <laughs> and a half cup of skim milk. Okay, and multivitamins. Is that like per with, meal? 
That was his daily caloric intake. I, I think you die if you do that. <laughs> well, apparently, I mean, sure, if he didn't stop. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is not about the machinist. Maybe we can, can, can get that get commission like later Jaundice on. Certainly get, like, jaundice or something. Obala uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jed, uh, Judd explained to us why he selected this movie. He says, this has always been one of my top five Five. Five. Five, five, five favorite movies. Top five favorite. You just shortened it. Some kind of future Scottish accent is what he speaks with. <laughs> uh, and he says, being a former U.S. Marine, I do feel like this is the definitive movie on becoming a Marine. And being a Marine in a hmm. uh, combat zone, although I'm an Iraq veteran and not a Vietnam veteran, I first saw this movie before I joined the Marines, and at the time I was about 99% sure that I wanted to join the Marines. Fun fact, uh, Cecily's mom and stepdad, and actually her real dad, are Marines. And really? very, okay. very, very oorah. Uh, and like we, I mentioned that I just watched this for the commission podcast and got very oorah in the, uh, in, in the uh, living room. Oh, uh, okay. But that speech that R. Lee Ermey, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman gives to his freshly graduated Marines about from now on till the day you die, you're a Marine. You're part of a brotherhood. Every Marine is your brother. Most of you go to Vietnam. Some of you will not come back, but know this, the Marine Corps lives forever. That means you live forever. That's all I was needed to give me the extra 1% of conviction that I needed to join. I think it's just because, like, uh, most of my knowledge about Marines comes from my dad, who was a Vietnam-era naval corpsman. Uh, if you don't know, those are the me- the medics that, because uh, every Marine's a rifleman, they don't have medics. The Navy provides them medics in the form of corpsmen. Uh, and my dad's got dozens of crazy-ass Marine stories, um, both in his basic training that he did. I... I I want to say that he did like half of his basic training with the Marine the, the unit that he eventually deployed with, um, or maybe he did all of it. Uh, okay. But basically, he's like full of like Marines going into town and raising hell stories and, and him patching them up. <laughs> uh, and also uh, working with Bad Brewer because he. Yeah, yeah. And, and he had an interesting love hate relationship with the, Corps, with the Marine Corps. And that. And it's kind of like. Huh. A unique type of brainwashing because you could tell that like most of his personality bristled with everything about the you know power structure and some of the stupidity right. inherent in that and serving under people that you perceive as not as smart as you but also he fucking unabashedly loves it okay so i don't know uh, it'd be i guess like i think i think of like if you had a job where you hated you hated what you were doing and who you were doing for, but you loved the people you're with. And also, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what part of the psyche it taps into. Yeah, it's uh, that's a good way to start off this film. I feel there's a certain duality to that. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's the Private Joker embodies that. That he right. is. Uh, well, I mean, they make an explicit joke once they get in country, where a colonel comes and says, "What the hell? You got a peace symbol on your lapel and mm-hmm. born to kill in your helmet." And it's he's trying to suggest the duality of man. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, it is a good place. There's to start a out. there's a heart and head thing there too. You know, it's uh. It's interesting. Yeah, we'll talk a lot more about that, I'm sure. Uh, it's funny because I've seen the basic training part of this movie, I don't know how many times. <laughs> Everyone's seen those scenes, yeah. But I've probably only seen the whole movie once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's whenever I'm watching it on cable, it's it's weird. It's like if the God, it's kind of like if the Godfather, as soon as it goes to Sicily, it's like, okay, I've seen enough. Right. You know, it's like I don't really have any desire to go on. You know, the Godfather is something where I. I 
Full Metal Jackets type of movie, when I see it on, I have to watch it until they go into Vietnam. When the boots are made to yeah. walk in is when I can I feel like I can I can turn off. And I'm not sure why that is. Well, I th- I think the narrative gets a lot fuzzier. Mm. Uh, way, way, way fuzzier after the uh the boot camp stuff. Um and, and it's it's pretty fitting that that he says this is kind of the definitive like being a Marine movie or or making of a Marine movie. Because it's 45 minutes. 45 minutes of training. Yeah. It starts at training. It goes halfway through this film before the training ends. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen as in-depth of a look at, at the drill uh, the drill instructor aspect of it yeah. and the boot camp aspect of it. Uh, so I, I could totally see why if you're a Marine and you've been through these experiences, this is the movie for you, right? Yeah. But I remember I've, I've talked to a bunch of different Marines about the authenticity of this. And, of course, uh, yeah. Arlie Ermey is famously a drill instructor himself. Right. And he's since been um, uh, given an honorary uh, title of gunnery sergeant by the Marine Corps. Uh-huh. Um, but I guess I, I guess the big deal between now and, like, then is that maybe drill instructors would slap you around. Uh, nowadays, they resort. I mean, they they they, uh, they can only resort to verbal humiliation, and they also are not quite as racist, sexist, homophobic. <laughs> right. Like there's, right. you know, there's the, the, it's had to evolve. I mean, they still break you down and get into your head, but they're not going to call you a queer. They're not going to refer to you as the N word, sure, or the any of the other colorful uh, racial slurs that he that he like. You know, he he. He's. I, I thought it was actually amusing the way he said, "I've been this. My Marines, all of you are equally worthy." He uses every racial epitaph I think there's ever been invented, uh-huh. and then he goes, "It doesn't matter to me because all of you are equally worthless." Yeah. Uh, but, I, th- so that's one of the things. Like I, halfway through this movie, uh, when it switches to Vietnam, and I I start getting into that portion of it, I started realizing I don't really enjoy watching this movie very much. Hmm. Like. Aside from some of the stuff in the training portion, the training half, let's say, yeah, uh, it, a lot of it is just so offensive, um, and and I get it. Like, it's of an era, it's of a place, uh, it's of a particular occupation. Like, these are potentially the things that went on, the things like the attitudes that people had during the time and in that place, and I get that. I just don't enjoy seeing it. Um, well, that, that's the thing. Like, I feel like that. I, I like I. I think how I expressed it to you was I don't like this movie, uh-huh. and I think that's the proper way for me to say it. I, it's not that this movie is bad. I think this movie mm-hmm. is really, really good on a lot of levels. I just don't. I can't watch some of this movie over and over again. It's funny because this is all dovetailing with season two of Serial for me, which is finally, in my mind, kind of getting interesting. But I I, I listen to Serial and I get onto the subreddit and I listen to Slate Serial's special. And it's astounding to me. uh, And, of course, I've never never served in any armed forces, but a lot of my family has. I've got a lot of family that's that's still serving, a lot of friends. You know, you're from the heartland, quote-unquote, of America, where everybody knows somebody that's gone. Sure, yeah. Uh, Especially now we've got a war. People know people have died. And and I feel like I'm more in tune with military culture. But I'm hearing, like, these very East Coast NPR liberal people talk about the military. And it's so obvious that they don't understand. Right, yeah. Like, you know, the things they find shocking. I'm like... 
is it really shocking that this kind of dialogue appears in a workplace where your profession is killing people? Sure. Like, there yeah. has to be a level, and I think that's, you know, in, in the training montages where they're sleeping with the rifles, where they're, uh, you know, the different cadence they're singing are, are either vile racist, vile sexist, or vile just anti-human messages uh, mm-hmm. It's all to get you comfortable with the idea of taking a person's life. And, you know, in, in the yeah. case of Vietnam and I'm sure in Afghanistan and Iraq, you you're, you occasionally kill uh, the traditional non-combatants, let's say, whether it's women or children or people that you thought was holding a rifle and maybe they're holding, you know, whatever. Uh, to do that as a human being and to do it effectively requires a level of detachment that I don't think people that haven't been through that or in something where people are trying to kill you, it makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about this kind of systematic um, abuse and systematic uh, offensiveness, I guess. Because uh, I, I do see where it could be useful for these people. Uh, when you're going into something that's so horrific, I don't think it's like useful. War, I think it's required for survival. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean okay. by useful. Uh, <laughs> that's it the, keeps that's them alive the, the, in this situation. Sure, and not just alive, but able to put it into this kind of over-the-top mental and emotional context that you have a prayer of of putting onto the shelf when you are called home and go to civilian life. Okay. Yeah, I, well, that, see, that's one of the problems I, I think I have with it is the difficulty of doing that, right? When you're so ingrained and you're broken sure. down as a human being and all you know is this particular situation and these particular sets of values, how do you do that when you come back? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I've never been in that situation and I don't know anything about PTSD or or the effects of this training in particular. But you can look at empiric data like how much of the homeless population in America are right. veterans, sure. especially combat veterans, and how many uh, you know have PTSD. And then you look at like an open question is how well does our country deal in in serving that population? And the answer is not well. I mean, I think it's... In, I, so I feel like that these levels of offensiveness... It's, it's funny to sit back and like, oh, man, they're talking about these people and these, and, and I'm offended by it. But their job is to get... I mean, they were dropping napalm on these people. They're shooting them with, with machine guns and artillery shells and going into villages and, right. and, and rooting out this. And also just the... Uh, you know the geopolitical worldview. Like it seems like this is. Uh, it seems like it's conventional wisdom. To say Vietnam was a wrong-headed approach, and not just that, but in the larger context of <laughs> communism versus democracy. Okay, like that. This was a war of ideas that that had to be resisted militarily. Like you know, communism might hoodwink the whole world in thinking that that it's a, it's a viable policy. Where it seems like that you could have just let them go to their own devices and the whole thing would have collapsed. Within sure. a, at least the way communism was practiced by Russia and, mm-hmm. and China and still practiced. By, but then again, you look at North Korea and maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, how gullible, uh, gullible are these people versus like what they see in their quality of life, right? But I mean, I think that's where like I, I saw a lot of dismissal of this movie by 
uh, contemporary viewers saying like, oh man, well, you know, you came late to the party because we've already had Deer Hunter and we've had Platoon. Sure. And like, Apocalypse okay, War now. is Hell. We all know War is Hell. But yeah. I feel like that it's weird because nobody ever attacks like a romantic comedy of Boy Meets Girls being formulaic. <laughs> right. But like, right. oh, you've seen one depiction of the horrors of war. You've seen them. I, I feel that's weird because to me, it's like that's something we should keep in the forefront of the consciousness. That if this dehumanization and this racism and brutality is a unavoidable byproduct and a desirable feature of our soldiers fighting wars, then it seems like the best thing to keep in mind is... Uh, and I and also it's like I'm not a pacifist. I do believe in the necessity at time. Like I feel like that that should be in your arsenal of a state. That that war should be a tool in your toolbox. That you know, okay. Every, every once in a while, it, it has to be done. Like maybe one day we'll live in a world that's not required. But but I feel like nowadays, occasionally it will be. Well, it's just super hmm. fucking important to make sure you're not sending these young men and women off to be dehumanized for some bullshit. Sure, sure. I I agree with you there. So I, there's also like a lot of problems with that, right? Like if if people view war as a tool in the toolbox, how do you ever get to a state where war is no longer a tool in the toolbox? It that's... seems self perpetuating, right? Like to to a certain degree. Sure. Like we need to use war so that we can stop the people who would use war. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know how that argument really shakes out. So do you, are you, would you cl- classify yourself as a pacifist? Uh, ideally, I would like to be, but I, I'm somewhere more toward you. Like, okay. I'm not saying that I have the answer there, and I think that I, I do think war is probably a tool that humanity needs, like, certain parts of humanity need to defend against other parts of humanity, because mm-hmm. there is that dual nature to, to humans, uh, but in an ideal world, yes, get that the fuck out of here. We don't need it. I wonder because it's something I have. I've, I've had conversations obviously with my son because my son freaks out about the concept of war. You know, he's told. <laughs> yeah, he well, should. He told on the by by the other side of his family um, that you know we're all heading towards a massive Armageddon style style showdown. Right. And uh, for my, I'm like, well, actually, if you look at statistics, things are getting better and more peaceful and prosperous all the time. Um, but it's interesting, like, if you think about a world that everyone has, every nation state has a some sort of stockpile of nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. and you just, you know, it's like it could go one of two ways. You could say, oh, well, there's a bunch of rogue states that just it's going to be constant nuclear war, nuclear flare-ups. Or you could say that maybe getting nuclear weapons empowers a country and also sobers it up to where, it's like, there's not a person crazy enough to not game plan you know, to not do the the war games thing. The only way to the win is to never play. I'm, yeah, and I'm not certain about that. But so okay. what's interesting is like what that would imply is that every nation just does the hell whatever the hell it does in its own borders, which is kind of like well, I guess the logical end game for pacifism. Like okay, North right. Korea sucks, but it's kind of North Korean's problem. Or Saddam Hussein sucks, we've doomed his people, but who's to say if you depose them, something worse is going to come along? Like. Sure, they're, pervasive they're, nuclear <laughs> weapons would lead to like I. I, I feel I, like this is more of a Doctor Strangelove conversation, honestly. Well, I I don't know. <laughs> than a Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket is a more personal movie, right? It's not. It, it's not about the full scale worldwide war. Uh-huh. Uh, the Doctor Strangelove is about. It, it's more about the the nature of humanity. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Private Joker. Um, so he goes into the core, and he doesn't even look kind of like your Marine. He's kind of nerdy looking. He's got these glasses. 
Um, he well, he looks. You know, he looks like everybody else. He's got his head shaved. He's got his head, yes. Yeah. He's got his lumpy head shaved. <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting, a lot of the soldiers in the movie had uh, glasses. When I think of soldiers, I don't think of them on the battlefield wearing <laughs> their, sure. their their big nerd glasses. But, but obviously... It's not, like, it's not like an astronaut, you know, where you can't no. wear... Which is not even true anymore. You can wear glasses as an astronaut, no problem. Can you? Yeah. I thought you had to have corrective surgery. No. Really? No, I've seen pictures of astronauts on ISS wearing glasses. Reading glasses or real glasses? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Okay. Maybe, they're, re- gla- maybe they're reading glasses, huh, yeah. Interesting. Um, so, I forget, you get, you derailed me. So, you got this guy, and he's kind of a, a philosopher uh, type, uh, as as the, uh, the, the yeah. drill instructor would put it. He is, but, but he also kind of knows the soldiering well enough that he's promoted to the squad leader. Yeah. Also, he's. It, 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 do you think he's atheist or do you think he's just not Catholic? Because uh, there's a scene where it's like, do you it believe in the? Does he said, do you believe in the Virgin Mary? And right. he says, no. You know, and and you you feel like the instructor's about sure. to kick his ass, but he could be Buddhist, he could be atheist, he could be any number of religions that don't believe in sure. Mary uh, or the divinity of Jesus, <laughs> any of that stuff. Um, I. I don't think it matters because that scene is there to show that he is intelligent, right? Mm-hmm. That he he's a thinking person. Yeah. And that that kind of, you know, that doesn't necessarily conflict with the job he's there to do because it gets him promoted, frankly. Yeah. Like, remi- he sees that he's smarter than whoever the other guy is. The other guy is not a good actor. The other guy runs up shouting just a little too loud, getting mm-hmm. a little too gung ho about it. Mm-hmm. He's demoted. Hmm. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if he can shout too loud in, in this man's Marines. I think yeah, he <laughs> shouted. If it's possible to shout too loud, this guy did it. Huh. All right. <laughs> uh, it, it is funny because it reminds me of the story of Madru told that I guess in you know he was in ten fifteen years ago uh, and that he wanted to put atheist in on his uh, paperwork. You know, and I guess like several higher ups got in his face screaming that that's not allowed and you can't do that. And he found out after he, you know, he took all the abuse and was like, no, I don't want to talk to the fucking chaplain and I'm an atheist and I don't want to do your bullshit prayer in the morning and all this other stuff that one of the uh, higher ups actually marked out that he put atheist and put non-denominational on his paperwork. (laughs) That he went, wow. took the time and went back and corrected. So it's weird that even in the 21st century that the armed forces seem like they're, you know, there's like, there's the saying that there's no uh, atheists in foxholes, which I don't, I think right. is false. Uh, sure. But it's like, that seems to be something that they cherish, that there's like a really God and country and that's all wrapped up in, in the armed forces. Uh, well, anyway. it helps when you're going to, you know, what could be considered an almost assured death at, at the very least it's it's not l- super likely that you're coming back if you're on the front uh that could be a useful tool as well right some kind of faith i guess i mean i uh, so i don't and that could have easily gone wrong with anybody other than yeah. his particular drill instructor i mean everybody says like oh that's a way to find you know like peace and courage if you think in the afterlife then and, and this life isn't it but i don't know i feel like a lot of heroism comes down to just snap decisions in the heat of the moment like uh sure. you know someone's about to get run over by a bus and you see it's happening and you see what's going to happen and you step in and you throw the person out of the way and maybe you get ran over instead but you didn't think 
Like, oh, I'm putting my life in more. It's just kind of like a almost a reflex instinct to well, to save or help someone. And then when yeah, you, but at the same time, like these people aren't aren't going into battle reflexively. They're going into battle knowing full well what they're doing. Well, I'm saying once battle starts, I don't know that right. there's a whole bottle yeah. like, oh man, I'm glad I believe in Jesus, or else I wouldn't, you know, storm this uh, machine gun nest or. <laughs> Thank God I got heaven looked forward, or I would just sit and shit my pants at the bottom of this hole that I dug. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, my my personal views on religion probably cloud my judgment here a little hmm. bit, but I I think like the sort of unquestioning nature of believing in a religion and a, believing in a god kind of lend themselves toward people who are willing to follow these orders without question. So uh, this is a really meandering discussion of, of Private Joker, just to re- remind right. where I'm trying to go here. Uh, he's assigned to uh, deal with this private pile. Mm-hmm. He's named after Gomer Pyle. He's, his na- real name's Leonard, and he's played by Vincent D'Onfrio as kind of a chubby Forrest Gump. He's sure. obviously got not just mental uh, development issues, he's got some emotional development issues, and he's singled out for abuse by... It's kind of hilarious, honestly, some of the stuff that uh, the the uh, the, dr- the oops, sorry, the uh, drill instructor, I almost said drill sergeant, which I guess is an army thing, not a, not, not a marine thing. Apparently, yeah. Um, but he's just not cutting a mustard. Uh, he won't stop yeah. eating jelly donuts. He's not taking the PT. He can't do <laughs> his drills right. He can't put his rifle together. So uh, Joker mm-hmm. is assigned to kind of be this guy's mother. And at first he does it diligently. He's like very patient. And he's just like, you know, and, and, and you can tell that Pyle is starting to kind of blossom under this. Um, but then he eats the jelly donut and he gets the whole, you know, the whole squad in trouble. Gets a beating. And he gets a code, essentially a code red. Right. Uh, you know, the load did put the soap in the uh, uh, the pillowcases. They tight blanket him, and then they beat him. And Joker gives him the most savage of the beatings. Yeah. What's your analysis of this scene? I he's I don't arguably think... the guy that feels the worst about yes. it, though, and yes. the most guilty. He does, but then I feel like once he gives into that, like the thing that he's got to do, um. He's also the most resentful of it, right? Because he's put the most effort into it. Yeah, and he feels like if anybody, if if he's also angry at himself, I feel like there's a little bit of that. Sure. Like I should have been able to help this guy a little yep. bit more. Uh, I'm gonna beat him just a little bit harder. Yeah, it, I don't know. There's a lot of confusing, conflicted notions within Joker. Yeah, and I don't know. That's other things. Like I don't know if you've ever been forced to deal with a person. Like I mean, that's. There's that frustration when you're dealing with a person that has limitations. Hmm. Uh, okay. I feel like that's like the root cause of why there's so many horrific things that go on in like psych, you know, psych wards and mental institutions. Mm. Just because day in day out of like the frustration, you know, like if you know you're checking out at a grocery store and the cashier is perceived as less intelligent than you, and I'm not talking about full on retardation or anything. They're just annoying to you. Imagine mm. that if if your job is to deal with dozens or hundreds of those right. types of people just the, the sheer frustration uh that that would and i feel like that if you're going into battle with somebody like that then it's weird because you want to judge joker and be like that's not cool man mm-hmm. but on the other hand it's like well why the hell is leonard here in the first place do we need bodies over there so desperately that you can't fail this guy out of the marines 
Yeah, and I mean, not failing him out, not, uh, what do they call it? It's like Watch section out. aiding him so, or yeah, something. Sure. Uh, like, be, I, I guess that's being evaluated psychologically unfit or something. There's probably different ways. You could probably get it from physical, like if you got the flat feet or, yeah. like, it, it, you know. I got the contextually, like I, I felt like section eight was mentally kicking people out, but I hmm. okay. don't know why. Uh but there's also the danger to that, right? Like he could cost soldiers their lives. Yeah, I mean, he could think cost about Marines the, the outburst lives. he has in the head happened four right. weeks in the country, and he slits everybody in his platoon's throat. You know? Yeah, or he's just unable to mentally push through a situation where he has to perform, and he gets his squad killed. What do you think happens to Leonard? Because his low point is him getting beat. Uh, and he's sobbing, and I thought that's the other interesting thing about the Joker is that he's the one that you know he he, he really is troubled by the man crying, and he's trying to cover his ears. He doesn't hear it, mm-hmm. but then it seems like Leonard gets with the program and becomes kind of like the ultimate Marine. You know, kind of in the way you know he he kind of does like the Forrest Gump thing. To be clear, Leonard is Joker, right? I only no, know no, no. That- Leonard is Pile. Leonard is Pyle? Yes. Shit. See, yes. I only know their names, their nicknames. He's, he's a good shot. He's like the best shot in the unit. He can he can uh, right. break down his rifle. But 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 Joker notices he's starting to talk to himself. Mm-hmm. What happens? I, 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 I what happens psychologically to this guy that turns him into the uh, Jack Nicholson esque figure that blows the uh, gunnery sergeant away? So that's where I feel like a little bit of the narrative of this movie falls apart. Like, I think the narrative is stronger in the first half, but there's this leap that they make from Joker getting really, really good at one thing. Still kind of, you know, not being great. Uh, Yeah, sorry, not Joker. (laughs) I don't even know him by their nicknames, apparently. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, Pyle getting really, really good at one thing to him just going full on insane. And I didn't feel like the movie earned that. Yeah, I like, also don't I feel like, like that's he how... was coming back up. Like he was on the uptick, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's gone. Yeah, it just also didn't ring true with my experience dealing with people with those kind of limitations. Like maybe oh, okay. he'd go withdrawn to himself, but like to go full on homicidal, like like to, to display some kind of psychopathy on top of the other things didn't. It's like that would be what would happen if you'd snap a guy like Joker. It wouldn't be like what would happen if you'd snap a guy like Pyle. Yeah, I don't know. Especially I mean, the I'm sure on, like, each they, case is and Also, I saw the Room 237 different. right before I saw, like, a couple days before this, and they made okay. it, like, they had the homage of the Stanley Kubrick uh, Wolverine face or whatever you call that, like, you know, head down, eyes up, kind of de- oh, demonic yeah, yeah. face. And I'm mm-hmm. like, it... And also, I agree with the, something Roger Ebert said in his reviews that he felt like that Kubrickian, Kubrickian touch ruined the scene because the tension of whether this guy's going to do something crazy. It's like you look at that guy's face and you know he's going to do something crazy. I thought the performance was a little over the top, like, like they he, say about if, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, they pulled it back like a good 50%. Yeah. And made him be a little bit more placid. And then he just, mm. from that standpoint, shoots the sergeant. That, I thought, would have been shocking and kind of... Because I even even the way they played it, I started to think right before Gunny started screaming at him that he's going to be able to take the, the gun from him. Yeah, I... And if they played Leonard just I a little know. bit more subtly, I think that would have been a lot... Had a lot more tension to it. I felt it's it's strange to say this in a movie that spends 45 minutes on basic training, mm-hmm. but I felt like that was, that was rushed. 
I honestly felt like the narrative it's a little Anakin structure the there was rushed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, there's a lot of stuff about the narrative that I, th- I think is intentionally broken down here, but I don't think that's part of it. I feel like this is the least Kub- Kubrickian movie I've ever seen. Hmm. In what way? Well, how would you how would you describe Kubrickian <laughs> to someone who didn't? innately understand that like it's you you're aware of how much what you're seeing is art and that how artificially constructed the shots are like the okay. way that the yeah. background extras are moving with the camera movements and the way the shots are composed right. so the geometric shapes all line up this felt like stanley kubrick saying you know what fuck it i just want to make a war film there okay. were no. I mean, there were some beautiful shots. I think the. I think the best one is at the end of the movie where they're singing Mickey Mouse Clubhouse song and they're walking in front of this burning building. Um, but I also felt like there were also some some shots that were strangely overstructured. Like, for instance, this the thing when they get to the to Vietnam and they're kind of dollying down this line of. Of soldiers, of that Marines, was weird, yes, and they're all delivering their line one after the next, each piecing together the puzzle of this joke. But 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 what's weird about even weirder is that's the tail half of it. The first half is just pretty much standard, <laughs> right? Marines with their thousand yard stares. Kind of what I was expecting that shot to stay. What was Cooper <laughs> trying to say with that? Like, I don't. No. Like, here's the real soldiers, and wrong. now I'm going to my actor. Yeah, there was something off-putting about that shot. There's also something There's something very deliberate about how the camera guy's being led. Or, I mean, it, it's this elaborate, like, three-buddy system where they're tugging each other's... <laughs> I don't know. I like, get it. Got that's how films... That's how movies are made, right? Why like, are all three of them duck-walking? Why is... One why... guy's holding the camera, one guy's holding the mic, because those are separate entities. And then the other guy... And the other guy's leading them so they don't trip on their own dicks huh, and fall over. Okay, yeah. okay. So it's, it's, you're just running reverse train on He's them. He's a spotter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. fine. Uh, but... I didn't see anything weird about that. It's just the the structure. It felt too structured in a no, weird way. No, the meta meta of this yeah. film, watching this filmmaking crew making a movie, and you're making a movie of that. <laughs> and then uh-huh. when it gets so Hollywood, and you've got the I forget Dan Harmon calls that something. Um, I forget that that line where everyone's statement, like it has to be scripted. There's no way natural yes. dialogue yes. works where. It's uh, I forget, God damn it! What is it called? Uh, anyway, it's it's like this multi level <laughs> joke where everything feeds into its itself, but uh-huh. it just goes on to absurdity. I felt like that there was he's trying to make some kind of comment on the artificiality. Like yeah, yeah I, I I'm making a movie be. about war as hell, but you, even this is the Disneyfied version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it just seems strange to me in a movie where part of his goal is to. From from the interviews I read, part of his goal here was to to kind of explode the narrative, as he calls it, mm-hmm. the narrative structure. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't want to have kind of this standard through line, which I feel is in the first half of this movie. Right? It's it's rushed, but it's there mm-hmm. with with pile. You know, he starts off as this doofus who can't do anything right. He eventually is coached to to mediocrity and even excellence in a certain manner, mm-hmm. and then that pays off with him going insane. And I and killing people i i think that's a fairly typical narrative structure like a three-part act mm-hmm. that you'd see in anything but then like he uses the second half of this movie to totally subvert that and kind of confuse the narrative in a way that i think is kind of interesting because of the subject matter like you've got joker you've got this very structured thing of 
of basic training, right? Mm -hmm. And that has the very basic narrative structure of a film. And then kind of when Joker loses his mind and shoots it and blows everything up, the narrative itself is blown up. And then it gets kind of muddy and confusing, much like the situation that these characters are in. Yeah. And I I think the narrative is kind of reflected in the scenario in a weird way. The name Private Joker is very reminiscent of the term a a private joke. Do you think that there is any kind of uh, intent with that? That this about the way the guy sees it, and I feel like there's a little bit of that. Like this, John Wayne is kind of something he does more for him, himself than anybody, and just the way he uh-huh. sees the world and and the fact he's got the peace symbol with the helmet, like that's the stuff that that's his way of coping with the dehumanization of everything. That he's got this layer of humor, these abstracted the world yeah, with detachment. And it, it falls apart at the very end mm-hmm. when he he's forced right. to kill this uh, little girl. Uh, "Quote unquote sniper," yeah. but then it's firmly put back onto his face in the final Mickey Mouse scene. Hmm. Is okay. that artificial, or is he just you know is that is that kind of showing us how you know basic the the kind of training these guys go through to desensitize them is effective, and that he's just all that shit he's just sloughed off like something. So I feel effective. like that's something innate to Joker, honestly. Like huh. I feel like he brought that in with him. Like okay. that part, like that detachment and cynicism wasn't necessarily something the army wanted to instill in him. Uh-huh. Although it's kind of reflected with all of the journalists, right? Right. I mean, you've, you've got the, the the group of kind of what I view as, you know, almost interns, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the newbies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got the, the head journalist. I don't, I don't know any of the proper terms for these guys. Sure. But he's kind of the one who's been in the shit. And knows what he's talking about and doesn't have that kind of detached yeah, cynicism. I'm glad I'm back here with the gear in the rear. You Though know? I feel like he has maintained some form of cynicism, right? Like, you don't put that fucking uh, first to go, last to know banner up unless the, the, the guy running the show says it's cool. Yeah. So he's obviously got this tongue-in-cheek feeling about the thing that they're doing, uh, portraying this war in a certain light. Uh-huh. Uh, even though maybe that's not how it's going, they're they're kind of spinning the story. So like, I feel like the journalism side of this war kind mm-hmm. of all have that tongue in cheek attitude. Yeah, and it's also interesting. But not, maybe not the detachment. It's another, another way it dovetails in this. I'm, what I'm watching is serial because the last episode dealt with like the concept of uh, counterinsurgency operations that they call coin. Uh, where okay. you're, it's the hearts and minds. You're trying to win the hearts and minds, and like you know, uh, these people in Afghanistan, they're not. They don't want to be Taliban. They want to be essentially like us. They want to be in a broadly Western style democracy where they can choose to do whatever they want. Um, okay. Versus the view that no, all these people are kind of savage and and they want to put medieval uh, politics and and religious practices in place, and we're kind of pissing up a rope here. And I thought that was that duality was nicely illustrated by the one guy who had the opinion that said, besides inside every slur that refers to Vietnamese, uh, there's an American mm-hmm. trying to get out. Versus the right. first, the I thought it was interesting. The first scene we see of them in. The Vietnam is of this Vietnamese hooker propositioning them. Mm-hmm. And all throughout the training montage, you've seen that they have conflated in the minds of these recruits the idea of sexuality and violence. Okay. Like, you know, this yeah. is my rifle, this is my gun. 
and uh, all the songs about fucking Eskimo girls and, yeah. and and whatnot. And like being married to your rifle, there are no yeah, more. Yeah, sleep with your gun. Yeah. And now this girl offers, she refers to sex as boom boom. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. and sure. Reminiscent uh, of a bomb, certainly. <laughs> yeah, and also the lyrics the Boots are made for walking about, like, you know, you've been telling this one thing, but you're really about the other, is kind of like uh, the way... That's, it's one of the coin, the, the coin guys on the Serial Podcast says... He says it's interesting that if you go in and you 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 there's this tribal elder first time you roll into a village and you're in your Humvees and a tri- tribal elder elder would go out and he'd he'd uh, he'd greet you and he'd say why are you here and you know the the official response is to be like well we're here to build roads for you and to build power stations and 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 build uh, help you build schools and get sanitized water and we're just here to help. And he would go back to the village, and they'd be like, "Why are they here?" He's like, "Oh, this is a bunch. This is a bunch of bullshit. They're here to uh, promote American right. ideals and eliminate a religion." Because it's the idea that someone would just come in in this country that's been torn by war for like fifty years now mm-hmm. and just help. It's like this is such patent bullshit to them that they don't believe it. He's like, this guy's saying like a better message would have been to come in there. He's like, look, we just want. We just want these Taliban guys. We want, above all else, Osama bin Laden. And we, as soon as we get him, we're going to ghost. Yeah. Like, that's a story that they would believe. But I think it's interesting right. here in Viet- Vietnam, they show that tension with the, you know, the bickering over the prostitute and then the fact that the guy steals his camera. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a Yankee go home message. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's funny because that's a message we here at home don't even believe most of the time. Right. right. And we say we're spreading democracy. And I don't I don't think that's the case. Everyone's everyone's looking for the other reason. Can you spread democracy? Good question. I mean, it's worth. I don't know. <laughs> like, I guess the big te- the big success would be the empire of Japan. We okay. came into that country, completely destroyed its social order, replaced it, wrote its constitution, and said, now we're going to stand over you with a club for a couple years until you get this an idea, and it kind of worked. But is right. that is that some... Because I'm, I'm, almost every other country that's embraced democracy has been through internal, tr- uh, mm-hmm. internal turmoil and revolution. Like, is that something yeah. that you can enforce? Is that, or is the reason that was enforced because something very peculiar to that culture and philosophy? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know enough about Japan or even America to tell you, frankly. Uh, I spent a lot of this weekend reading about, like, World War One and the Marshall Plan and, and mm. the this thing we did in Japan and, and also, like, why we fought communism and what they yeah, were yeah, trying yeah. to do and what they feared would happen. And that's the mm-hmm. thing. It's like when you look at some of the decisions they made, they and you, you don't if you don't use the benefit of hindsight, some of these I some of these don't look terrible in the light in, in the light of, you know, nineteen sixties or nineteen fifties day. It's like Yeah, I mean there's just there's a lot of rhetoric around communism. Because right? what if I told what if you what if we lived in an alternate world where the Western the style democracies just became extremely isolationist and did whatever, let communism spread unchecked. Would we have large sections of the world run like sure. South or North Korea? Or would it kind of work itself out? <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. Like, I think Is that's something what, like, that, like uh, yeah. you know, uh, Orwell talked about. Like, 
if a state gets to a point like in North Korea where the propaganda is so extreme that you can't even think straight, mm-hmm. what is the mechanism to which the you're, you're hijacking the mechanism humanity has to foment opposition ideas and put them into play? Like you're fucking with their uh, history, you're fucking with their vocabulary, and like a lot of these, you know, Stalinist style. Uh, authoritarian communism regimes would do that. So it's like, I, it seems like, yes, they would m- mostly fall apart. And it's, ar- it's you could make an argument that North Korea would fall apart if it wasn't for China pop- propping them up. And then, you know, every, like right now they're doing mm-hmm. it, they've lobbed a ballistic missile at Japan. And I'm sure in the next couple of weeks we're going to hear about new sanctions and then sure. new foreign aid. And it's like they're hungry, so now they're rattling their sabers. It's it's you could probably say that North Korea might have uh, fall fallen over if they weren't propped up, but but I think it's it, at there's the time also, it was a scary thing. Like what happens if sure. the whole world looks like 1984? Well, I, I think there's a quality of life thing that also people won't put up with. Um, to at a certain level, um, it, you you can only have everyone being shit on for a certain amount of time before there's revolt and they change it. How do you explain though? Because North Korea is a right. fucking. That's like. Is that the like exception that proves the rule? That way. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are certainly different tolerances for each each people, yeah. right? Like, who's to say that twenty years from now, fifty years from now, they won't get fed up sure. with it and change sure. it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe we're watching that experiment because we're not moving in on North Korea. Sure. We're not doing the same things right. we're doing in the Middle East. So right. maybe we'll see that experiment play out. Yeah, uh, and, and like, maybe a hundred years from now, nothing will have changed there. And I wonder if will be critic. There'll, there'll be criticism of like how many wasted generations uh, right. in North Korea lived and died in and futility. Maybe we should have done something yeah. when we didn't, and yeah. it's kind of the direct opposite where we shouldn't get involved. I mean, the in whole Israel places. situation exists because of a lot of guilt over the Holocaust, and never we right. can't ever let this happen again, except sure. when we do. <laughs> but, and the question becomes like, how long do you prop that up? Right, sure. Do, sure. do you just in in perpetuity and like you can argue like, continue well, to prop maybe that, that wasn't up? the best thing to do maybe we could have done something different but now that it has been done what's our obligations to yeah. I mean that's the kind of thing with Iraq and Afghanistan like what is our obligation to stay in there and try to provide stability since we destabilized it right and those are you know complicated it, issues that no one really has a easy if you, have, if you like sure. you have an easy answer you're probably wrong <laughs> sure i have i have no answer so how about that what do you think about the depiction of the u.s soldier i suspect mm-hmm. that you know since we're talking about a marine commissioning this podcast and saying this is a top five movie that he doesn't feel like this is an overly terrible depiction of a u.s soldier I think it's a nuanced depiction. I do too, um, and I, I think that services the the Marines more than any one sided view would. Yeah, I, th- I think it allows people to come at it with their own perspectives and ideas and make their judgments as opposed to being spoon fed. Yeah, it's weirdly it's a lot more positive than like Platoon or uh, no. you know which kind of portrayed the American soldier as a bunch of junkies and insubordinate uh, superior officer killing guys and it's it's more fair than probably um, or more positive than uh, the Deer Hunter that showed like the the sure. massive psychological and also made up a bunch of stuff about maybe different atrocities were committed. Um, I thought this but, like it showed like unflinching like this is the shit that happened in country, but you also understand why they got that way. Right. I think this is 
this is more fair in that it's less subjective, right? Like, like you can, I feel like, like the, it's, the movie invites you to criticize the policy, but how can you criticize the soldiers implementing the policy given? Sure. Yeah. And that's the other thing I think that dovetails nicely in a serial because the central, that's the, I think, because I don't know, I feel like this season's been weird this way, but the central mystery in serial is, um, why did this guy do this thing that he did? Why did he walk off base? Why did he try to provoke this dust one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and did he have the right to do so? Was that something justified as okay. a soldier? Can you just decide, I don't like the way this is happening, so fuck this, I'm going to break ranks. And and also, can you come up with a opinion on that that would work if, like, you know, if, if you believe that wars have to happen then you need your soldiers to fight that war whether or not they personally agree with the sure yeah with the philosophies behind it i mean that's again goes back to my thing is like it's the civilian leadership's job to make sure you don't put them in bullshit wars where they have to do bad stuff for no mm. good outcome but once they make the decision to go to war do you want the soldiers deciding for themselves that ah, is bullshit i'm going to fight it uh, yeah, I'm going to protest this thing because I think it's uh, unjust or wrong or immoral. And I think, well, okay, so you, you just hit on on what I think is the distinction that needs to be made is something that is um, politically incorrect and something that is morally objectionable. And I feel like the soldier, the Marine, you know, Navy officer, whatever, has the duty... Uh, the, the human duty to probably judge moral versus uh, immoral. Well, I, I don't, yeah, I don't I'm not think talking like war crimes. I'm that, talking that's about what I mean. like, because like, I don't think killing this girl with pigtails is a war crime. No, no. She had a rifle and she was shooting at yeah, you. I, frankly, I don't, I, I think it was fairly justified and, and almost compassionate mm. um, in the way that the end of this film uh, is portrayed. I, I don't think Joker did anything wrong there. Even though, like, it's it's strange to me. Let's let's talk a little bit about the ending. Okay. If, I, if you don't a lot mind of, jumping around. I feel like there's a lot of symbolism in there, too. So, it, it's bizarre to me, because I felt, watching that scene, that what, what these people did was totally justified from every single angle. Yep. I think when you have a, a sniper shooting at you, and has already killed multiple men... You go in and you shoot them. You take them out. You eliminate the threat because that is a mortal threat. Mm-hmm. Fine. Done. And I think when Joker walks up and everybody's like, oh, man, we, what do we do here? We can't kill her. I think Joker killing her is more compassionate than it is revenge. Uh, certainly revenge is mixed up in there. His his friend uh, fucking what's his name? Yeah. The other the pile of shit. I didn't know they'd stack Mother? shit that high. Oh, well, no. uh, that's uh, the cowboy. Yeah, yeah. So it's revenge for that, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it is revenge, but it's also compassionate. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's one of the, the dualities of this movie. Uh, I don't understand why they're all, like, hardcore, man, at the end of that. Because I felt he needed, he did yeah, what needed to it, be done. If you, as, as an outside observer, I guess it's like, uh, if you're judging American servicemen on what, you're grading them on their morality here, uh-huh. on their ethics. It's like, all right, so you shot the threat, you eliminated the threat. Right. That's all fine. That's justifiable. Totally. What you, you got, you got, do what you should do, what's unconscionable, and then what's understandable. Like, what you should do is take yeah. this girl and get her medical attention. Or at least try, right? 
Like a per, a perfectly virtuous marine would have shot the girl and then dragged her off to the field, or, or at least tried to evacuate her to a field Here, hospital where she can get care. Here's my question: the unconscionable thing to do would be to leave her there to die slowly. Absolutely, yeah. The understandable thing is the mercy killing. Yeah, right. That's uh, how I guess I I judge I, it. I guess I have a question to pose to you about. The morality of the first statement, which is the proper thing to do here is to get her medical treatment. If this was a 30-year-old male, mm-hmm. what's the proper thing to do? It's same the same. It's, I, I'm saying that that's the the okay. moral thing to do. I think what the seems laws to of me... war, quote-unquote, the laws of war expect you to do is once an enemy is incapacitated to, to treat them. But it seems to me like the movie was saying this is something particularly shocking because it's a 14-year-old girl shooting at you. Well, no. I mean, that's... I, I, once once the shooting starts, I kind of view them all the same. However, I mean, the, you're talking about... So, yeah, I it's, mean... We... It's on a meta scale, yes, it's sure. more horrific. Because it, it, you have these innocent people uh, pushed into this action. Right. Uh, th- this and girl... also, you got to deal with these, the, sec- the inherent sexism, which, you know, it's more disturbing to shoot a young boy than an old man. It's more disturbing to shoot... It's even more disturbing to shoot a woman than a man, and then a young girl is like the worst. I disagree I, I think, in this context. How? Because they are shooting at you and trying to kill you. No, no, you. no. I'm saying that, like, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm yeah, saying yeah. that I feel like most men in this era of time and still today would see shooting a boy as more objectable than shooting a man, and seeing and shooting a little girl would be more rough on your conscience than all of them because the perceived helplessness and innocence is on a sliding scale. I, Girls are sugar and spice. And I agree nice. with that out of context, but mm-hmm. in this context, I totally disagree. The, the playing field is 100% leveled once the shooting starts. You think that that's what Mother and Joker and Cow and and, and and the other guys would have felt about it, watching that girl dying? No, I don't think so. Okay, that's so what context are you talking about? The context of this person is trying to kill me. Yeah, you don't think about that, but I'm saying the scale of that's pretty fucked up. It's a lot higher that she's a girl than she was a boy. The, yeah, I just act. I don't understand why they're so why they're so concerned about like killing this person who was trying to kill them a moment ago and would still try to kill them if given the opportunity. Because they're no longer a threat. It's the difference between defending I, yourself and being sadistic. Right, but I don't see them getting her out of there and getting her medical attention. Right. Okay. So what are your two options then that you're left with? So you're saying why did like, everyone why say is, hardcore? Yeah, why are they like Hardcore, man, because she was a 14-year-old girl? But don't you think that was a springboard to turn it back into a joke? Like, I felt like that was... Really? Because I didn't that's feel a, that's essentially that what that moment. It, no, I didn't either, but I felt like that that's how... It's kind of like in the book, uh, and maybe even the film, The Right Stuff. That's like what all, you know, the test pilots would do to make themselves feel better about it, is they wouldn't say, oh, man, it sucks that this guy went up and this plane disintegrated. It'd be like, right. this guy fucked up, because if I was in that plane, I would have flipped this switch, and I would have done this with the joystick, and I would have kept the Gs under here, and I would have feathered this, and I... I wouldn't have died in that exact... This guy is essentially caused his own stupidity and the fact that he was missing the right stuff got himself killed. This Their mechanism was to essentially try to turn this back into gallows humor. And sure enough, the next scene that you see him marching in this hellish right. Armageddon-type landscape singing the Mickey Mouse Club song. Yeah, I didn't get that from the... The particular that, 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 hardcore It's kind comment. of like um, the same way that like the the Muppets, the the Waldorf, and whatever the the 
the old guys in the balcony. Every uh-huh. once in a while, they're like, "Ah, oh, it's pretty good. Oh, it wasn't terrible. Well, it wasn't good either. Yeah, oh, it was." Ter-. You know, they like talked themselves into the criticism. I felt like that was like, "Oh, that's pretty messed up." Was a springboard for them to eventually find the gallows humor in it. Okay, and also, it was a connecting piece for the movie. Yeah, like the other thing is like I thought that was interesting is Maybe. how the I, guy who hmm. shot her. Mm-hmm. He was so amped up from the act of doing the killing that the somberness of it took him a long time, if he ever felt it at all, to get to. Because he's still doing like this sexually suggestive stuff over her corpse, which I thought was also something Kubrick was doing. You spent the first half of the movie kind of laughing and chuckling at these guys pl- doing dick jokes with their rifles. And then you're introduced yeah. to Vietnamese women as essentially whores. Mm-hmm to be used and then you have the actual little girl being fucked by the rifle yeah it's uh that imagery is is disturbing and and it's intentionally and it makes you feel retroactively bad for enjoying the enjoying the techniques that the marines use to induce this state into the soldiers yeah i mean that's partially why i didn't view that hardcore thing as a joke like i i i they're all kind of keen on getting this first kill, even Joker himself, sure. right? Like, he wants yeah. to get out in the shit. He wants to get the first... The duality of man, man. First kill. I know. And that's... That's... Like, I don't think there's a joke in that moment. <laughs> I really don't think there's a joke in that moment. I think there's visceral reactions to these things by... And different oh, ones. so, yeah, I'm not saying that people. that's messed up or that's hardcore was a joke. I'm saying that if all of them just sat there in respectful silence... Yeah, yeah, okay. Like, that was okay. the words I that were you. just injected into something we don't know. It's kind of like, what do you say? What you do, have to say what something. What do you do? What do you say? Because silence is too much. So that starts I, the, sure. that's the lubrication I, okay. that they then get to where they talk themselves in and rationalize I'm it. with you there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of interesting looks into, like, what it's like to be a soldier. Like... The point where they took the, the the black soldier and made him go out and scout this building where they knew there was right. a sniper. Yeah, that's not that, that's cool. That's terrifying. That's not cool, man. Uh, being a scout or a tunnel or tunnel rat or is like, I go out there and see if no. someone shoots you, essentially. Right. Well, you got your back. Someone's got to do it. You know, it's not like... And the tension was super They effective. can just sit there forever. Yeah. And then the idea of your buddy being shot on the battlefield and... Uh, he's out there bleed. I mean, they, Dan Carlin talked a lot about that at World War One, like because that's kind of a this is a relatively new phenomenon right. mm-hmm. in war. In 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 most wars, you don't sit across from each other in these fortified positions and have no man's land where you know someone gets shot out there. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go out and get them. But everything in your being and your training and this this esprit de corps wants you to go out there and get that guy. Right, and I I feel like. So there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy in some of this um, that I saw, like with Animal Mother in particular. Animal Mother is the embodiment of the action hero, right? Mm-hmm. To a large degree, he's strapped with bullets. He's got the chain-fed he's machine the one gun. The mach- yeah, he's sure. willing to run out to the shit when he's nobody the heavy else weapons is. Guy. He's almost a, a joke, right? Right. I mean, I'm certain there are guys like that in the military. I don't. I don't want to say that there aren't. Sure. But he's supposed to be the embodiment of a typical war hero movie, uh, war movie hero. Uh Uh-huh. So he runs out there against the the direct orders of his commander. Sure. Uh, You know, it it works out for him. He he gets lucky. He doesn't get shot by this sniper. Doesn't work out for Uh, Cowboy. Doesn't work out for Cowboy at all, certainly. But 
then later on, he's like trying to give orders. Like, Cowboy's gone. I'm the commander of this thing. Right. Now you're going to follow my fucking orders. Your last, no, your wrong last man. act before ca- of, of a uh, non officer type character was to disobey the order of your su- superior. Exactly. And, and that's the kind of thing where I can't, I can't imagine that that happens very often in the military. Like, well, to disobey a direct order sure. is, is the highest form of... of uh, That's what I'm saying. Like, it's interesting... What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Betrayal. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Of treason, almost. Well, you know? I mean, the like, military doesn't work if people did that. Because exactly. nobody wants to go out and get shot. So when your exactly. captain and then if, or lieutenant or whatever says, go and take this right. area, you go. And it has to be punished extremely harshly because right. the first time it happens, no one starts. People start disobeying orders because no one takes them seriously sure. because they can be disobeyed. Yeah, and that's. I, I felt like they never even addressed that in this movie. Yeah, which is unfortunate. You know, this other thing is I thought it was in uh, speaking of another parallels I saw in this week's serial is that. Um, so the the one guy who walked off the base and. Uh, uh, you know, started this whole shit and got ended up captured by the Taliban for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things he cited was the fact that his superior officers were like just really sticklers over the stuff he thought was stupid. Like um, okay. they come back from this battle that they fought over a broken down truck, essentially that they needed to. You know, they wanted to haul this. Sh- the 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 commander told him to get this, retrieve this vehicle. They got blown up by an RPG. Mm-hmm. And they get up there. It's got no tires. The mechanic's like, this thing's blown up. What the fuck do you want me to do about it? Do you want us to drag? And it weighs two tons. As we're getting down this mountain, as right. we're getting fire on all sides. And, the, and they do it. They yeah. do it. And they get back. And the first thing the CO says on base is, you guys didn't have fucking time to fucking shave out there because they all have five right. o'clock shadow and whatnot. <laughs> And uh, he's like, not how are you doing? Boy, it was rough out in there. And the other story he told is that they were all digging ditches. And um, the CO pulled up and got all in their faces because they weren't wearing their heavy body armor. And they weren't wearing their hats. And they had taken off their shirts. And they're out of uniform. Okay. And then, so, in, and when you listen to the soldier talk about it, it's like, man, that seems like a bunch of bullshit. But then you talk, you, they interviewed the CO. And he's like... Uh, look, one of the things that they taught us about the lessons we learned in World War II and Korea and Vietnam is breakdowns and discipline. Like, you know, you overlook things like uniform policy and haircuts and whether you shave or not. That's like the broken wind. That's like the military's version of broken wind. That's how you get like the My Lai massacre. Like there's uh, like what you, is that? That's that's where you got GIs just gunning down civilians and, oh, okay. and raping villages and stuff like that. It's like yeah, you, yeah. you could and and this this military's uh, decision making process. They see that like you know just like uh, uh, Giuliani said, you let a piece of graffiti in a street and a broken window. Next week you got crack dealers. Week after that you got people getting gunned down in the street. You let people not shave and not yeah. wear their uniform, and then they start disobeying other direct orders, and then they start massacring civilian populations. Population. It's like, okay, so from the GI's perspective, it's a bunch of bullshit rules. From the commander's perspective, we're worried about not letting this thing get out of control. Mm-hmm. And I thought it's interesting that there's one point in the movie where Private Joker, he's he's narrating something, and he says, the Marines don't want robots. 
Hmm. And yet what you just okay. said conflicts like there there's conflicting here. It's like, yeah, you don't want these people to be unquestioning robots. Um, but on the other hand, every once in a while, you got guys like Mother deciding they want to get payback and right. disobeying direct orders. And there's some kind of balance there, but how do you find it? Yeah. War, I mean, fighting fighting wars is a super complicated I mean, it's, thing. It's, I don't think it's uh, controversial to say it's the most extreme thing that humanity does. Probably. And it's also not I mean, just – that's the other thing is like it's not, a, it's not purely a human thing. Like even among the primates, it's well documented that the various tribes of apes and monkeys go to war and commit yeah. fratricide and infanticide and fucked up repugnant shit. <laughs> sure. That is still in our – that's still buried in our DNA and in our – you know, the deep part, monkey parts of our brains. Right. And it's – Right. So it's it's – goes without saying there are going to be a lot of complicated yeah. aspects to yeah. that. Which goes again, it's like, you know, once you de- that's why you really have to go into war with sober and sound judgment because yeah. once you let that genie out of the bottle, you can't be like, oh, well, fuck, our, we didn't intend to, to kill civilians. We didn't intend our soldiers to be involved in this potential war. Well, that's what happens when you de- you ask people to shoot to shoot at people that they consider not human, and they consider them not human so they can actually shoot them and right. live with themselves. Right, and I think that's, that's the reason why this movie is so good is because yes. it doesn't try to – make heroes or bad guys what it tries to do is just present you with the the reality of it the truthfulness of the situation maybe the most nuanced vietnam film i've ever seen yeah i'm with you and maybe maybe that's a lot of people say well maybe it's slightly more pro-american because i guess my bias would be a little slightly pro-american i think you bring that to it i don't think this movie has a lot of that in it yeah i think it's more about showing you the war right Showing you what these people are going through to do the job that they need to do in this extreme situation, and but I thought that's another case. Like we talked about, the boots are made for walking, prostitute scene. How that was kind of a commentary on the futility of the war. I thought that Cowboy's death mm-hmm. as a commanding officer on the scene, um, he's in denial the whole time. As he's bleeding out, he's like, you know, uh, what was his, I wrote down his direct quote, uh, I can hack it, I can hack it. Like, the whole time yeah. as he's dying, like, I've got this, I'm holding it together. And then he dies Do you think it's representative <laughs> of the U.S. command structure dealing, like, you know, this is movie set in, in the Tet Offensive, which, in hindsight, yeah. we find out that was, like, the last-ditch effort for the Viet Cong to push America out of the country, and if, hmm. if you know, it's, it's debated that if America held on for a little bit longer, then that was it. Yeah. Uh, then you know we wouldn't have a North and South Vietnamese, and uh, yeah. it wouldn't have fallen to the communists. But they didn't. Whatever. You, Do you think the cowboy is supposed to be a stand-in to the military and civilian leadership? That's just like, no, we've got this. We just need a little bit more troops and a couple more months and a couple more bombs. Like, maybe, I thought that was an interesting maybe. commentary that you got this guy who's clearly yeah. dying and he just won't accept it. Yeah, I I don't know the stuff that I I read from Stanley Kubrick about this film was that he was more interested in the truthfulness of the of the movie and not the narrative of it. And I what does that I, mean? I want to take him like just showing the situation and not constructing a particular narrative. Um hmm. j- just like he he says that the the most interesting thing about any situation is the the truth behind it. But what does he see as the truth? In he US sees, involvement in Vietnam and the soldiers experience there like that's I don't, an interesting that's not the thing kind to say. Of truth. Like, the the proper perspective is not what he's looking for. Right. The 
the truth of the situation is what he's looking for. The 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 truthfulness of what actually happened, not any kind of perspective on it. That seems artificial to me because part of the truth that he's portraying it takes place in a certain set in time and how you perceive the rightness or wrongness or the strategy of that influences the situations you depict. Right, but is, That's he, a weird... but is he constructing a narrative that gives you an opinion on it? I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think that's what I'm in saying. some like, ways I, you can't uh, you can't help but do that when you make sure. a movie. Right. That's all uh, I was saying. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying that this is a pro-American, anti-American, or what. This is it's kind of neutral on that. But I do think yeah. there are clues to what Kubrick really thought about the situation. Okay. And how he chose to depict Vietnam, the people. I thought it was interesting that right. like most Vietnam uh, Vietnam War films I've seen are in the jungle. That's, 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 that's a true, big yeah. part of the character. This felt almost like a World War II flick, and it's all urban conflict. And that's interesting because this was filmed on a set constructed in England. That might be why. Yeah. Because I can't really go out into the jungles. It's going to be expensive to do that shit, but I can set up this, you know. And I, I became increasingly aware of that as I watched it, that like this is essentially a block or two of set that just gets yeah. filmed in different lighting, different smoke conditions, different angles, like... And I, I guess that's what I guess I felt like it was a little non-Kubrickian because it felt a little bit budget conscious there. Hmm. You know, like if, if okay. a, a real Kubrick movie would have gone, would have been filmed in Vietnam. Yeah. And it would take in years hmm. and, you know, he would have, it's, I, I, I don't know. It, this felt, again, I, you know, I just, it felt like more of a, a straight up war film and where he was, I, I felt like, and you dispute this, I remember because we talked about this Friday, but you were like, uh, I was like, I wonder if Kubrick decided to do this because like, I want to see if I can film just an all out war film and do these stunts and do this, uh, you know, the special effects and, you know, a lot of the movie, a lot of the tension in the movie depends on whether that stuff works and it's not going to be a bunch of weird geometric shapes and intricate set designs and layered backgrounds and, and mm -hmm. rearranging soup cans on a shelf. It's, it's going to be right. just this gritty thing. Sure. Sure. And I, I only tried to refute that because of the stuff because of how I know his process works, he basically goes away for a while mm -hmm. and he'll voraciously consume media and books and particularly books. Sure. And then he'll eventually hit on one where he goes, you know, I could probably do a a really interesting adaptation of this because the themes in it speak to me. Do you think that this film is a reaction to the other Vietnam films that he was saw like a uh, platoon maybe. and he saw a deer hunter and he saw Apocalypse Now and is like, this is... All of them are too Hollywood in their own way. I want to do something that's more neutral and nuanced. Uh, I, not, I mean, I don't get that impression. I get the impression that he what read this book. What interested him so much and, about... Okay, yeah. So why, why do you think he made Full Metal Jacket? I think he, I think he makes it for the same reason he makes all of his, his movies, which is something in his life that he's that he's either read or experienced at that moment consumes him uh in his thoughts and he feels like he has to make something about it like it's the same thing about the shining you know he read he read uh Stephen King's work and was like mm -hmm. uh, this this narrative structure uh and the the supernatural versus the psychological is so interesting to me that I need to hmm. turn this into a film 
And uh, this is a book, right? This Full Metal Jacket is uh, a book by another name, I, I think. I don't know. I never got that far into it. I read. I got, I got a couple articles that I read. One was um, a roundtable of philosophers and film critics that did like an analysis of the, uh, especially the psychosexual imagery. And another one that Judd sent uh, is documentary on YouTube. that's about forty minutes long. About yeah, it's kind of like a mini version of Room Two Thirty Seven. Um, okay. It's a show. It, it purports to talk about the deeper themes. I thought the first twenty minutes of that documentary was kind of like a fairly obvious reading of the movie. Okay. Yeah. When they talk about the duality of humanity and the the nature that's, of war, yeah, that's overt in the narrative. Come sure, on, sure. people. But there are like I, the, the philosopher film critic thing that's called the duality of man. They actually had some stuff in there I thought was interesting. For example, uh, and it's it doesn't mean you know this is something where you'd be like, hey, Aaron, this doesn't mean anything. But <laughs> it's interesting that. Uh, back in basic training, Private Joker was kind of you know you you had the the drill instructor who was the stern father figure, always disapproving of Pyle, and then mm-hmm. Joker was the one that was the patient, maternal, you know, showing you how to do this, showing you how to make your bed, and the guys got kind of like this idiot loving grin towards the guy. Um, and then at the end where the drill instructor confronts Pyle and says, what the hell? Is, what's your major malfunction? Did your mommy and daddy not love you enough? And it's him. It's just him and Joker. Mm-hmm. It's like they, that Kubrick is intentionally drawing on these paternal and maternal archetypes hmm. to okay. get at a fe- – now, again, who the fuck knows – Right. Uh, Kubrick's dead, and these guys right. are just looking at this stuff and, and finding stuff. But I, I thought that yeah. kind of stuff is interesting. Um, so anyway, this documentary, which all this stuff, I'm going to link the stuff that I thought was interesting in my my reading about this. Uh, they mentioned a couple things I thought was interesting, and this, you know the Kubrickian subliminal message types is that in the final scene where. Uh, uh, the Joker's trying to get the better of this sniper that the way that the window treatments and the lattices are forming, and I guess this is endemic to Vietnamese um, architecture, is that they form these intricate swastika patterns. Yeah. Now, in the East, swastika does not mean national socialism. It, it It's kind of... Uh, you know, it has a more spiritual uh, depiction of kind of like the wheel of life, I think, or like the the okay. reincarnation and, and kind of uh, enlightenment. It means more positive spiritual things than it does in the West. <laughs> sure. So, you know, you could say, well, that's just Kubrick, you know, seeing design elements in these villages and wanting to make it true to life. Right. But it's interesting to see how these American soldiers are being put against these swastika backdrops. Um. Okay. And murdering this little girl and then immediately marching to this Mickey Mouse song, which they also go into like the basic anti-Semitism that Walt Disney displayed. And mm-hmm. I like I did I did a bunch of research because this was all news to me. It's like I feel like there's abundant evidence that Walt Disney was some kind of anti-Semite. Okay. Uh, which doesn't surprise me because a lot of people dated Jews back in the day. A lot of people still do. Um but I found very little evidence that he was a Nazi sympathizer. Okay, which would tie those two themes together. Did you think of anything? What? What? I mean, I, you probably think this is all bullshit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an architectural feature. <laughs> okay, so you don't think there's any intent? You don't think that? I can't you don't think imagine. Kubrick's sitting there looking at this shot selection, like, oh wow, there's like a dozen interlocking swastika behind these young men's. I yeah, that's that's not interesting at all. Ah, uh, maybe. I don't- I don't know. Again, it's I, possible I mean, he, to say. Yeah, yeah, and I, 
I don't know. I I give Kubrick more credit for that stuff, I guess, than other directors. Uh, but what do you think of the I, Mickey I'm Mouse Club? Sure, what, what do you think of the Mickey Mouse Club theme? Was this a simple? How many layers do you agree with? Uh, number one, the the text is you have these young okay. boys that just went through this horrific experience, and this simultaneously illustrates their loss of innocence and kind of like their morbid detachment to same. Like I'm okay. going to use this boys and girls like this like hey boys and girls come join the Mickey Mouse this is this is this is like Mickey Mouse going to war right and it's it's sweeping over and like you join us like you either let out your ear, inner American or or we kill you uh, so there's 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 the text you agree with that right sure it's just blatant yeah um, you also got the like well maybe Walt Disney was secretly fascist and America is a fascist is a fascist state and it's a blah 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 okay you got that. Um, I, I, again, I kind of lost the track of where I was going for it, but it's something to do with uh, Joker's closing moments uh, as he's narrating over this is he echoes what Pyle said. I'm in a world of shit, mm-hmm. but I am alive and I'm not afraid. Yeah, that's I, interesting. I don't. Do you feel that he's not afraid? Yeah, I mean, I guess I afraid is not the word i would use to describe him there sure well see that's the thing i guess because it's the last words and it's the narration i feel like that this has an eternal kind of this is an eternal statement this isn't like in the moment this is i private joker in the rest of my adult career in vietnam am not afraid to die and maybe in the rest of my life yeah there's something interesting that kubrick says about the end of this movie um and particularly when he kills this uh, sniper, he says that Joker is not just a Joker anymore, but a positive life force. He said mm. this in in a uh, an interview, and I'm not sure what he means by that, but it's got to be tied up in this not afraid sort of thing. Well, he's finding his middle path. Like I said, the perfectly virtuous Marine would have tried to get this girl medical attention, and probably the whole squad have been shot up, dragging her to the hospital. Uh, uh-huh. The mother, the the unthinking mother, would just leave her there to die of a painful gut shot wound. Who knows yeah. how long it take her to die? Especially mm-hmm. since she's begging, begging for death. His middle path was the mercy killing. Okay. Um, granted that, and I I feel like, <laughs> you know, very rarely do people in combat embody the highest ideals of gallantry. And we have the Congressional Medal of Honor to give to those people that do shit like that, to do like just right. crazy acts of heroism. Um, the, the fact that, and then you, you probably tend towards doing the more fuck them. You know, they were trying to shoot us, fuck them. Uh, so maybe that that is the P was being a force for good. Yeah, I mean, I can see, you know, that not being afraid as kind of being resolved to the path that he needs to take. Um, because before, he's just completely lost in this whole thing. Well, but he's also got a clear, like, he doesn't want to just toe the line of the Stars and Stripes assignment, his journalism right. assignment. He wants, he doesn't want to just give body counts. He doesn't want to be, he wants to kind of find something important and decent about this thing that he's doing. Do you think that, like, going forward, like, what kind of, what's he going to do when he returns to the States? What kind of, t- this war, what kind of stories are you going to tell about the war? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't know that that is clearly meant to to send me a message, but I don't know what it is. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's in America. We're at a good place with Vietnam right now. 
Okay. Like, like with the country or with the story, our, our just story with our history. national memory and history of okay. it. That uh, you know, I feel like when before, during, and before the war, there was just a lot of rah rah patriotism that then got uh, destroyed by the protests. And right. then there's the unfortunate thing of these again. I, I don't think you can blame the GIs for the stuff that happened in Vietnam. Like, you know, these people are getting spit on and they're getting called baby killers and uh, they're being, you know, there's this kind of shame about, like, the nation shame of suffering this defeat and and the things that came to light. uh, um, And then you have this, the the deer hunters and the platoons. And now I feel like that there is some way that we can see that maybe we shouldn't have been there and there was some terrible things that happened but there's still a lot of um individual stories of gallantry and heroism and you know these especially since a lot of these men were conscript conscripted um you know that there's nothing essentially shameful about being a, a soldier in vietnam like it's somehow we've got like a, okay. a pretty good as a society i think a 360 degree view of how we feel about that war yeah. What yeah, did you think? Now, this this is another thing I, w- I want to talk about, but I forgot. Um, in did you think these men were conscripted? It didn't uh, feel I, I got like the feeling it. the Joker might have been. Really? Yeah. Because he said like there was something he said in the narration about like this is something he wanted to do. Like I wanted to be the first hmm. kid on my street to get a confirmed kill. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That doesn't sound like someone that got drafted. Well, shit, I'm drafted. Since I'm not going to college, I might as well be the first guy on my street to kill a Vietnamese. Yeah, like, no, you're right. And and um, I didn't. I felt like, and I don't know. Again, from that seems strange this, to me. It was was the was the army mostly still volunteer at this point? And it was after right. things kind of turned south at the Tet Offensive that, that I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. We need historically, Dan to do a seven-part yeah. series on Vietnam. Right, right. I feel like if this were a World War One movie, I could talk much more intelligently sure. about it after having listened to his series on sure. it. But yeah, uh, which is hilarious that you feel like after listening to twelve hours audio, you feel <laughs> well. I've, you feel I've, you feel comfortable commenting on that war. More comfortable. No, no. I, I, what I'm saying is, it's, it's. I think it's. I agree with you. I just think it's funny that, like, just okay. because you had one perspective of one person's synthesis of four years of conflict, that now we feel like, hey, we're experts on World War One. No, no. Okay, expert is not the word I use, but I know. I, I but get, you know what I'm I saying. I understand your sentiment. It yes. is kind of hilarious to think that you can watch a Ken Burns documentary sure. now. I know about the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a- absolutely. But to the extent that More what can so you know than, about anything? than watching The Patriot, right? Sure. <laughs> like, sure. I, I guess that's the point I'm getting that, at. That's like, the revolutionary war, so you're fucked now. if you're trying to if, – if you're taking away well, yeah, Civil, yeah, yeah. War, <laughs> Civil War inside the Patriot. I've seen Apocalypse Now, so I know all about the Civil War, of course. <laughs> sure, sure. But no, I, I've seen Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. I saw Independence Day, so you know, I'm pretty right. much good on, <laughs> on military history. Sure. <laughs> uh, where were we going with this? Oh, yeah, the Vietnam, the Vietnam thing. Yeah, yeah. What about it? We've talked a lot about Vietnam, but I said spe- specifically about whether these guys were cons- conscripts or not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, historically, I don't know how much of of that time period was was constituted by the draft, uh-huh. or how much of it was like, you know, when when the draft became a big thing. Okay, I mean, I mean, either in, in the Vietnamese. I thought it was this. So if none of the perspectives were that I got, anybody was like, "God damn, I didn't even want to be here. I was forced to be over there." Right. You that know. seemed strange to me, knowing that there was a draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't know. 
so shall we get to some? There's a couple other interesting things that uh, Jed, uh, not Jed, Judd, trying to make a Portman you of his first and last names. Judd sent us about his experiences with Basic and just kind of his like nitpicking of the film. Mm-hmm. Should we get to that now? Sure. Yeah, and maybe we have some nitpicks too. Uh, Judd says most of the boot camp half is very accurate, although my drill instructors. Uh, were never as articulate as Hartman was and certainly never used high-minded rhetoric like, God has a hard-on for Marines, but most of the dialogue is accurate. I thought it was interesting that there's other thing that doesn't feel Kubrickian, that uh, R. Lee Ermey was allowed to improvise and write his own dialogue, and that Kubrick is on record as saying, like, I usually got two or three takes and felt like I had enough from him. Yeah. Like, that's pretty fucking incredible that... That guy can just, I guess that's kind of a drill instructor art that you can just stream that steady uh, flow of, it's it's dehumanizing and profane, but it's also something that like, he, he gives a little bit of praise, and when you finally get it from him, it's all the more rewarding. Sure. But that's a yeah. real skill that they have. Yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to encourage the qualities that are desired, right? Sure. And so when they display those qual- those qualities like leadership, like yeah. um, n- not hard-headedness is not the right word, uh, whatever Joker displays that gets him promoted, uh, y- you want to encourage those things, sure. But yeah. you have to break them down also mentally. Yeah, that's, I, I, I compare and contrast this with like David Schwimmer as the... <laughs> Band of Brothers? Yeah. Sure. Like, he did all the same shit, but there was something, there was some respect. Yeah, they didn't take him seriously. Just leadership, charisma, something that made what he was doing completely intolerable. Well, maybe the fact that he was kind of incompetent. He was, yeah. Uh, and, whereas, and if I recall, he hadn't really been through any shit himself. Sure. Uh, whereas this guy, so whether, he didn't he have the respect. Where, whether he killed somebody, um, you know, Hartman just seemed like he was squared, like you... Arguing with him would be like arguing with God in this context. Sure. Yeah. You're just not going to win. Yeah. He created this world. You're going to tell him yeah. how it works? Uh-huh. Um, anyway, uh, he says, we were never referred to as privates, but rather as recruits. But I guess that's pretty trivial. I never did see a DI lay his hand on a recruit the way that Hartman slaps Joker and chokes Pyle. Technically, he didn't choke Pyle. Pyle checked himself. Pyle is his own free will. He just used the drill instructor's hand. But from speaking with former Marines who served pre-Desert Storm, that did happen on the occasional basis. The only part in the bull camp half that was completely bullshit uh, is the one that I've always had an issue with is the final scene where Joker finds Pyle in the head uh, slash restroom with not only his rifle but live ammo as well. There are several reasons for this. Number one, recruits in boot camp are only issued live ammo at the rifle range. Each recruit is given the exact number of rounds each day, and before leaving the rifle range, a recruit has to turn that in. The exact number of spent brass cartridges as well as being thoroughly searched. So it's difficult to believe that a recruit like Pyle, a known fuck-up, would be able to sneak off with live ammo and keep it hidden until graduation. Uh, also, the rifle you're issued in boot camp is not the rifle you use throughout your Marine Corps enlistment. The boot camp rifle is turned back into the armory at the recruit depot during the final week of boot camp. Once all the rifle and field training is completed, so no recruit would have a rifle that late in boot camp. Huh. Also, each night, unless you're in the field, rifles are racked, locked, and only the drill instructor has the keys. The scene where the recruits sleep with the rifle in their bunks is also <laughs> a little bit of bullshit. After the graduation ceremony, which is also in the film, you are dismissed from boot camp. You do not stay at boot camp another night, as depicted. He says, of course, wow. this is my experience going through Marine Boot Camp from December 20, uh, 2002 to March 2003, so I'm sure it was different for a recruit in 1969. 
The other thing sure. is, like, I, I personally know a Marine that walked out of his time in the Corps with a mortar launcher and several mortars. Whoa, what the fuck? And there's a story to that, which I'm not going to tell. But okay. uh, And then, again, that wasn't in basic, neither. That right. was in some other training exercise. But Holy I shit. feel like people overestimate how good the military is in keeping track of every single bullet. That Yeah, that's not something you just stick in your pocket. No, 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 no. no. Holy crap. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's – uh, I, I imagine – and, again, like, you know, is this something that uh, – private gump or private player going to be able to pull off right i don't know but uh i, I have at least one contra to that uh, he, here's point the of view. trivial question i have yeah uh, aside from you know the barber being clearly the easiest job in all of the military uh all you have to do is just totally take the hair off you someone. say that until an officer uh, with a stick up his ass wants the perfect fade right right Sure. Yeah, they're, they're the officers. When you just when you just shear in the cat to sheep, uh-huh. sure, recruits, that's, yeah. that's an easy day's pay. <laughs> so that that leads into it, right? We like got Hartman coming here, chomping a cigar, saying, "You fuck up my fade, my boot's going to be up your ass." Then uh-huh. That's that's when the pressure's on. Yeah, so that leads into my real question: Why do they force the recruits to shave all the way down, and then kind of just allow? them to do whatever they want with their hair later on well, i think there's there's joker, regulation joker clearly has has a non-regulation haircut yes no i think that they're like i, I don't know i don't know what the army regulations were in vietnam uh, in vietnam and also you know vietnam also had some kind of relaxed discipline um yeah i right. don't know it's strange though because it, it ties into but, that discipline thing tra- that you so talked about like earlier the basic training where you know it's that weird thing where they dehumanize you and break right. you down but then build you back up and instill the pride and the core and the fact that you're a marine you're no longer a maggot you're a marine now but they still don't encourage that individuality right like that that a a chosen haircut i don't know would there's a surprisingly wide variety of hairstyles that is considered uniform and i think that's it's i was okay. reading an article huh. a couple of years ago about black women in particular mm-hmm. how they there's there's a current thing of reevaluating that because essentially it's almost impossible and it's crazily time consuming for the average black woman to have mm, uniform yeah. quality hair huh because like you know the 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 ways that like an army or a marine person can have their hair done if you're a female there's a few prescribed styles and they're all pains in the asses and super time consuming right uh uh so I, I, but I remember when I was looking at the, because um, there was like you know twelve different pictures of a of a of an army uh, person uh, of an army woman and what they could have, and I'm like, wow, I had no idea hmm. that this is the different types of hairstyles you could you could rock in in the army. Okay, but you know you got the like the high and tight. Like, did, did you say right. I, who, right. who was out of compliance? Like, I didn't think any. No one I had Joker, like Joker looked the most. But his, his out hair of wasn't over his ears. It wasn't no, in his pretty, eyes. It's, there was no it's ponytails. Longer than I would have expected, I guess. Hmm. Uh, and just kind of, I don't know. I wonder if the journalism department also like had a little bit more of a leeway. Yeah, could be. But it, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just unfamiliar with the different yeah. types of hairstyles. But that that was my curiosity. Like, why do they force them? Because it seems to tie into that discipline thing where. You would want them following all the rules at all times, sure. Because as soon as they stop, as soon as they relax, it all goes to yeah, shit. Yeah, that's that's, that's like the why beginning do they of... let them relax on the hairstyles yeah, later like, on? If you start letting decide what rules are going to obey, right? Where does that stop? Yeah, sure. So maybe somebody who, you know, was in the Marines could tell me that. 
that's all I got to say about the movie. You got anything else? Uh, no, I, where does it, let me ask you this. Where does it rank as far as the stuff you've seen of Kubrick's, uh, compared to like a 2001 of shining? I don't uh, know how to compare it because it feels so unlike. Uh, just, yeah. I mean, just what, I guess what you would prefer to watch again, <laughs> like your favorite, that sort of thing. I, I don't know that I ever want to watch the second half of this movie again. Right. That's, like, that's I, why I'm, I'm, and that's, it feel, makes me feel guilty because I feel like that the stuff that I want to watch is all the sugar and the pop and, sure, uh, yeah. you know, it's like if, if I, if I don't, the more traditional type, if, if I just watch a super cut of Omar being awesome yeah, instead of in lieu of watching the whole, if I watch two hours of just Omar being cool mm-hmm. and decide, oh, I just completed my rewatch of The Wire, it's not fair. Like that would piss off David Simon in particular. Sure. I feel like it'd piss off Kubrick if he found out that I'm, you know, on, I'm bored on a Sunday and like, oh, <laughs> shit, it's 10 minutes into Full Metal Jacket. Oh, Boots made walk. Okay, it's, oh, here, it's uh, Batman Begins. I'm going to watch that now. But I gotta be honest, I don't feel like I need to see the back half of this movie again. It's kind of like the same way with, you. with Deer Hunter. Like, I don't ever really, I don't mm-hmm. ever want to see Deer Hunter again. Now, if I force myself to, I'd probably come to a deeper appreciation of the movie, uh, but. Um, I think. Uh, whereas The Shining, I could watch that again right now. Doctor yeah. Strangelove, I could watch that again right now. So I, I think my, my hierarchy of watchable, like, if, if you say, hey, we're gonna watch a Kubrick movie. Yeah. And in any in any typical state, mental state that I'm in, I probably go automatically to Doctor Strangelove, mm-hmm. then The Shining, then maybe Clockwork Orange. Uh, what do you think about 2001's watchability? It's pretty low, right? Like this might be higher in watchability than 2001. Look, I feel like 2001's it, a movie. It's like, really uh, fucking interesting. But... I've got the itch to watch it again because it's been about five or six years, and okay. it's one of those things where like every time. You know, you change as a person and what you see, and yeah. it's, it's one yeah. of those movies. But it's not something you watch like I'm going to pop a pop, uh, uh, yeah, uh, 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 a bowl of popcorn and have fun watching this movie. Mm-hmm. This is something I'm going to have to turn my brain on, and I'm going to be look not, and I'm not just going to be watching it to watch it. I'm going to be watching it for what I can mine out of it this this time. Yeah, and I don't think that's a failing no. of the movie. I think it's just you got to be in a certain but mindset to watch this. Full Metal Jacket. I don't think, because it is so un-Kubrickian, mm-hmm. I don't know that it would reward multiple watches the same way. Like, not only is it not yeah, fun to not. watch, but it's I don't know how much too, yeah. there is there, because a lot of the messages surface, and some of the other stuff, like whether Mickey Mouse is a Nazi mascot, is, I think, kind of uninteresting and beside the point. Yeah. So, I, I agree. But I don't know. Um, okay. It's, it's again, it's... it's hmm. It feels, Sounds like we're roughly on the same page about it. It feels movie. fundamentally less complex than some of his other. And I throw like Ben Hur, mm-hmm. or not Ben Hur, Jesus. Spartacus is kind of the same way. Spartacus yeah. is fundamentally kind of uh, it's just a story you watch. It's right. well told, but it if I if I would go back and watch it now, I bet I would say it kind of feels unkubrickian as well. Right. Yeah, um there are a couple of of his early films that I think he even thinks the same the same about before he kind of became the director that he wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any, any, so. If you've done any kind of art, you know the phenomenon of going back. Like, I even experienced this as a programmer. Like, what fucking asshole wrote this code? Look at the comments <laughs> in the repository. Oh, shit. It's me. It was me. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it, and it's sometimes, it depends. It's the other thing. It's like, the more, 
it's weird. The more of an amateur you are, the easier it is to fall in love with what you're doing as you're doing it. Sure. And to look yeah. back at it and be like, oh, I did a kick-ass job. And the better you get, the more spilled, at least for me, your work is with self-doubt. And you look back at some of your early stuff, you just be proud of it, just like, oh, that shit. So I'm sure Kubrick, yeah, as a how... above intelligent, obsessive person, really right. probably hated some of his early movies. Yeah, he did. I wonder. I wonder how a director like Steven Spielberg would look back on his work, his earlier stuff. Well, you like, know, he thought there was way Jaws. too many fucking guns in ET. <laughs> had to put had airbrush those out and put shitty rotoscoped right. walkie talkies in the agency. So I don't. But know. But someone who's more there for that that sort of spectacle and that sort of narrative hook. Yeah. Right. Like I bet that's they all. I bet I, that seems like such a human. I'm. That seems like such a human part of the condition, you know, the, or a part, uh, embedded part of the human condition, just being embarrassed with sure, the stuff growth. you did before. Just basic yeah. growth. Yeah. Because that's what, that's what led to him, like, oh, shit, I've got these guns pointed at children. What the fuck was I thinking? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Whereas if you have the... Well, he if, wasn't. That's yeah. the thing, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but also... Maybe sometimes uh, <laughs> that, that darker material appears, appeals to children. What about, like, a... Uh... A Joel Schumacher. What about like a uh, Michael Bay? What do you think they think about their older stuff? Uh, Probably not as technically impressive. Like, oh yeah, I could have made that explosion bigger. Well, that's a good. <laughs> it's like Michael Bay, I guess, would be the one that is still doing the same thing he's been doing. And and I feel like he's kind of kind of proud of it. Uh huh. Um, but you also got like, you know. Joel Schumacher is a good example. Uh, he's Guy interesting. Guy made St. Elmo's Fire and, and The Lost Boys and Falling Down. Right. That's Falling a... Down, one of my personal favorite movies. That it's, it's very interesting to watch that. And I, I you know, uh, but he also made Batman and Robin. Yeah. Uh, what it's the fuck? Pretty pretty bad. So there, those. That's a guy. Like I, I don't know what the what to think about him. Who knows. And then you got the concept right. of selling out, like did Joel sure. Schumacher just does he know that he's making shit and he just doesn't care anymore? Yeah, like I made my good stuff; it's still good. You know, like Jay Z. If you want to hear my want to hear my old <laughs> shit, buy my old album. Like uh, <laughs> I'm just fucking around for me now. I don't know, man. Uh, uh, anything else you want to talk about? Nah, that's it. All right, Judd. Thanks for pulling the trigger on this. Uh, we had a lot of fun. Well, I, don't, I can't say that we had a lot of fun watching the movie, but it was an interesting experience and led to a lot of interesting discussion and a lot of research on my part. And I feel like I'm in a, a full-fledged... I'm going to keep this Kubrick thing going. Oh, boy. I'm going to go back and... I actually okay. was shopping for the definitive like Blu-ray edition of his stuff. And, man, it's hard to find one. It's hard to find Blu-ray. a collection of Kubrick. Oh, of, yeah, yeah. Like, the w- most inclusive collection is, like, the scarcest of commentaries, but the one that doesn't have as much of his material collected one spot has a lot of interesting documentaries. Hmm. Uh, uh, there's, like, a, you know, this one that's, I think it's 60 bucks on uh, Amazon that has six of his films, but it's missing some of the early important ones, but it has three documentaries on him. Like, would I be better off doing that, or would I be better off getting the more... You know, just more of your raw films and not a lot of the bonus materials and for my own damn opinions. Yeah, I feel like I've seen the stuff of Kubrick that I need to see aside from maybe Lolita. You should see like, Spartacus. You haven't seen Spartacus? You should to, see Spartacus. I don't know that I need to see Spartacus or Paths of Glory or Barry Lyndon. Paths of Glory. I want like to see they're... Barry Lyndon just to see a movie that Kubrick hates. That's what I mean. Like, do I really want to see the stuff that 
even he doesn't like or the stuff that's so early that he now views it as just a completely different direction that he took Hmm. i don't know i feel like the big ones are the ones you need to see to understand kubrick what kubrick wanted to be i guess well, I mean, it's a whole like, well, are you are you doing this with an understanding of a, what Kubrick is, or you just want to see some really? Because uh, that's the other thing. It's like I don't know how he feels about Spartacus, but Spartacus is a hell of a film. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, like to see a guy, even if he's quote unquote slumming on a big sword and sandals epic. Like, what does a sword and sandals epic helmed by a young Stanley Kubrick look like? It's pretty. It's pretty interesting. Sure. Um, but anyway, thanks for that, Judd. Uh, if you'd like to commission your very own podcast, it's easy. Go to baldmove.com/shop. Uh, there's a couple of things you can get off the cart. They're called community commissions where you pay 10 bucks a share. Once we sell all the shares, we take it down and, and, and do it. And also you can just grow for the quote-unquote brass ring and commission a uh, podcast just like Judd did. Your favorite movie, most interesting movie, something you'd always want to hear what we think about it. You can just pull that off the shelf and, and have us talk about that. Uh, two, two-ish hours of audiovisual entertainment. Uh, couple of TV shows, uh, a movie, I've had people do video games, whatever. A book? Is there a book I can read in two hours? I bet. Animal Farm? Can I get through that for two hours? <laughs> you the cliff note, sure. Spark notes. <laughs> right. uh, Baldmove.com slash shop. We'll see you on the next one.